Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We memorize scriptures together every week. This is not one of them, but by the time I'm done preaching this, we should all have it memorized. Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of, the glo- of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. We've been taking our time working through this first few set of phrases of the book of Hebrews because everything else that the author has to say in this book to these Jewish believers and to us hinges upon the supremacy and excellency of Jesus Christ. In the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their temptation to shrink back away from their hope in the cross of Christ, The question that begged to be answered was, what makes Jesus worth suffering for? Why should we believe that God wants us to hang all of our hope of eternal life on Christ alone? To this question, the author immediately responds by saying, we should believe it because God has spoken. In the past he spoke in many portions and in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his excellent Son. And what makes the Son so excellent? Well, according to these verses, he is excellent because he is, first of all, the heir of all things. As God's only Son, he is the only one in line to receive the inheritance of the Father, which consists of everything that has been created. All that belongs to God is designated to be given to the Son on the last day. And that should be a tremendous encouragement to us when we're struggling with circumstance, when it appears that the material blessings just aren't filtering down to us, It's easy to allow ourselves to get discouraged. But God wants us to remember that as children of God in Christ, we are not poor. We have an inheritance. And that inheritance is the inheritance that belongs to Christ. We are rich in Him We may not be given much in terms of material resources on this earth, but neither was Jesus, and neither were the apostles. We may not be given much in material wealth, but one day we will inherit all that the Father owns. And we can wait. We can wait for that. In Colossians 3, I was reading this week just in my own quiet time. I pray you're having yours every day, spending time with God and His Word. 
In Colossians 3, Paul says that this whole truth should have a profound motivating influence on our lives as we work, gentlemen. We may feel like we are overworked and underpaid, but we need to remember that our ultimate reward does not come from our employer, but from God. And so Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than from, for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so what should the focus of our minds be as we're working Is it get more money, get better wealth, get a bigger house, a bigger car, a broader portfolio? What should it be? Our focus as we work should not be on the money at all. It should be on the reward. I live for Christ. He's promised the reward of the inheritance, which will be mine on that day. So I can wait. We can wait. And that's good for us at Christmas when some of us are tempted to go into debt to purchase presents that we can't afford. Okay, now I'm meddling. Our hope is not grounded in the possibility of more possessions on earth, beloved, but in the internal inheritance of heaven. And for that, we eagerly wait in full expectation and joy. And so the Lord Jesus is excellent because he is the heir of all things. Secondly, he is excellent because he's the creator of all things. In other words, all things were not only created for him, they were created by him. He was the instrument that the Father used by which the entire cosmos was created. Not only the material things, but all of the invisible laws that keep it all in place. It was all put together by him. And so the author of Hebrews says, through his son, God made the world. Christ is excellent because he is the sole heir of all things, and he is the creator of all things, but there's more. There's so much more. If that were all that was revealed about Jesus Christ, we might be left thinking that he may be something less than deity. But the author of Hebrews would not have us believe that for a moment. The author of Hebrews would have us understand that when he speaks of the Son of God, he is speaking of the second person of the Trinity. As the old theologians used to say, he is very God of very God. And so the author of Hebrews adds in verse 3 these words, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. When you read that, you should say, oh my goodness, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, in order to find out, we need to start by looking at the word radiance. When you look up this word in the literature, in the Greek tools, you'll discover that radiance usually refers to light that is traveling away from its source As beams of light radiate from the sun, it's not the idea of reflection. Angels reflect. Jesus does not reflect. He radiates. 
He is not the reflection, the reflector. He is the radiator who radiates directly from the source. Some versions use the word instead of, um, instead of radiance, it says brightness. In that case, the God the Father is the Son at the center, and Jesus Christ is his brightness, his radiance, or as John Owen puts it, his brightest beam. And so Jesus Christ is the radiance or brightness of God's glory. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory? Well, to the Jewish reader, this would have been intuitive. But for us Gentiles who were not born under the canopy of the Old Covenant, we have to do a little digging. Because this isn't something that was passed down to us. It's not part of where we live. We didn't grow up hearing about all of these things and participating in the Levitical system that would have made all of this evident. And so we have to dig a little bit. And we need to go back to the Old Testament and see if we can find the idea of brightness associated with the glory of God. And indeed, the Old Testament is peppered with this concept from first to last, and that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. There's far too much material here for us to look at in a single message, so let me just offer you a healthy sample of what you'll find when you do this study for yourself. But let me warn you, you need to put your seatbelts on and your helmet as well, because we're going to be flying through the Bible. And we're going to start with the book of Genesis. And so I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. It's going to be hard for me to keep up with this as well, so you stick with me and I'll try to stick with you as well. And we'll see if we can look up these scriptures. I want you to see this because we're talking about the glory and excellency of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you, when I said Genesis 15, you moved ahead of me. You knew exactly what this chapter is about. This is a key chapter in the book of Genesis because here it is that we find God's very first covenant, the most important one, not the first one, but the most important one is with Abraham. And this is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15. And you know the story. God came to Abram and told him to do an unusual thing. They were going to cut covenant together, unusual in our minds. And he gave Abram a list of animals to catch and to kill and to cut in half and then to arrange them apart from each other so as to make a path that the two could walk between. And the idea is, if you were going to cut covenant, you would hold hands with the person you were covenanting with, and you would walk between the pieces, symbolically saying, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I should ever break this covenant. The difference being, in this case, God put Abram to sleep. And in effect said, no, this is my covenant to you. But an interesting thing happens here. After he puts Abram to sleep, we read in verse 17, And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Now, don't allow your mind to Im immediately think of a, a flying potbelly stove <laughs> and a real torch. That's not what he was saying. He's saying... There was smoke, and there was fire, and it appeared all by itself and walked through the pieces. 
Here God revealed himself in a way that looked like smoke and fire. But this is only the first of many occasions when he would reveal himself in this way. This was the glory of God. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. By this time in biblical history, as you know, Jacob's descendants were living in Egypt. Moses had been living in exile in the desert for 40 years. He is now 80 years old. And then one day, Moses, while tending his sheep, goes up a mountain and he sees something unusual. Very odd. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, read along with me. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which would eventually be called Sinai, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight by which the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he says, Here am I. And he said, Do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here God reveals himself in a blazing flame of fire. And at first, Moses saw it, and it made him curious. But when he heard the voice of God coming out of the fire, his curiosity instantly turned to fear. Because he knew who he was, who was speaking. This was none other than the voice of God. In fact, six times... In verse five times in verse six, and then another time in the previous verse, God identifies Himself so that there would be no misunderstanding about how to interpret this flaming bush that is not being consumed. It is God revealing His manifest presence through fire. It is the glory of God. And interestingly enough, we get a hint of what the author of Hebrews is referring to. Back in verse 2, because the rest of the, the text says, I am God, I am God, I am God. But verse 2 says, the angel of the Lord appeared. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Now that's important because throughout the Old Testament, angels appear. But there is a specific designation here, the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see that, something should happen in your brain that says, take notice. Because this isn't any mere angel. This is God himself. Why do they call him an angel? Because he was bringing a message. That's what angels do. They are messengers. 
But when God himself would come, he referred to himself as the angel of the Lord. And typically we know that it's God because whenever it's normally an angel, just an angel, a man or a woman will fall down on his face before the angel and the angel will say, no, 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 no. Get up, quick, get up before God sees you, you know. Get up. Don't worship me. I'm just a servant, just like you. But whenever God appears as the angel of the Lord, a man will fall down on his face and the Lord will say something like, and take off your shoes too. This is holy ground. This is the glory of God. This is the glory of God in blazing fire coming from the angel of the Lord who is none other than God himself. This is called a theophany, or theologians will sometimes call it a Christophany, because it's not just any person of the Godhead. It's not God the Father, and it's not the God, God the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is the second person of the Trinity, hence the term Christophany. It is Christ in the Old Testament, revealed in his glory, but not in person. And so who was it that Moses saw when he climbed Mount Horeb? He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. He was the burning bush. He was the angel of the Lord, a flame in glory. The main thing that we need to see here is that once again, God revealed himself in the form of blazing fire. And as we move forward into Exodus, then we come to chapter 24. Just flip over several pages to chapter 24. Here in Exodus 24, Moses has now brought the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And now he has come back after some time to this same mountain, Horeb, or now Sinai, as it is called. And if we had the time, we could look at how God appeared as a pillar of fire at night between the Egyptian army and Israel until God brought them across the Red Sea. But here in Exodus 24, God calls Moses back up Horeb, back up Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, this now for the second time. And as he went, the people of Israel could see the manifest presence of God on the top of the mountain. And verse 17 of Exodus 24 reads, And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. In fact, God had called all the elders to come. Come to the top of the mountain. And the elders said, Moses, you go. We don't want to go. We're afraid of that. They didn't want to go anywhere near the glory of the Lord. And here we have the first clear statement. That this fire which keeps appearing is none other than the very glory of God. He says, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. That fire that had been seen in the bush, that fire that, that had gone between the pieces before Abraham while he slept, was none other than the glory of the Lord. It was God's glory. 
And for Israel, the glory of the Lord was a fearful thing. It was not something to be trifled with. It was not something they were comfortable with. It's not something you could sit before and fall asleep. It wasn't something they spoke about casually. They never made light of it. It never became a marketing gimmick or some kind of object of shallow cliché. The fiery glory of God was to be feared. And this is the way it was. Every time the glory of the Lord appeared, every time God put forth His manifest presence, and it continues through the Old Testament. Look at a couple of books later, Numbers chapter 16. I'm skipping many instances of this, but Numbers chapter 16. In verse 35, when the elders of Israel rebelled against Moses, God told them all to assemble before the tabernacle. And when they did, Moses had told them, you think any of you guys can can do what God has called me to do? That's fine, but God never called you to do it. He called me, and I didn't even want to do it. But he called me and he didn't call you. And now God wants you to come forward because he wants you to show everyone what you're made of and what he is made of. And so he assembled all of these elders who wanted to make of themselves priests and said, fine, bring incense. Bring your little censers where you can blow smoke in front of the the temple or, or the tabernacle of the Lord. And there they assembled And God was furious. And so we read in verse 35. Verse 35. Moses writes about that day. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. This glory of the Lord that had been leading them as a pillar of fire by night. This pillar of fire that whenever it would have Israel stop, whenever God would stop and tell Israel set up camp, the pillar of fire would then move back above the camp to the central location where they would set up the tabernacle. And as soon as the tabernacle was set up with the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the fire would come down and it would move into the tent and set it ablaze and yet never consumed. And they saw it night after night after night after night after night but they no longer feared him. And they became cavalier. We can do that. Why does Moses get to do it? I mean, it's kind of like the emergent church today, right? I mean, why does the pastor get up and, and get to talk for 30 minutes? And I laugh at that, right? 30 minutes. You know, you're, just, you're not feeding your people if you're talking for 30 minutes. Why does he get to spend 30 minutes up there talking to everybody? Nobody else gets to say anything. Answer? It's not because Moses or the preacher is anything different than you are. But God has appointed 
And there is no other reason. God is gifted and God is appointed. And if you have a problem, people, with Moses, take it up with God. But beware. Our God is a consuming fire. And the people rebelled again and again and again. And you know what Moses did every time? Moses and Aaron always threw themselves on the ground, not to duck, but to plead with God, be gracious, be merciful. You created them. You know they're but death. You know they're sinful. But this time there was no mercy. And that fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. The glory of God was to be feared. Again in verse 42, the people come back and they're upset about this as if Moses had done it. In verse 42, the people complained against Moses for what had happened and Moses tells us that they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it again and the glory of the Lord appeared. Here we go. Then Moses and Aaron came in front of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get out, of, get out of the way, get out from among this congregation that I may consume it in an instant. And Moses and Aaron threw themselves before the Lord and pleaded, but by the end of that day, verse 49 tells us, 14,700 people had lost their lives. The glory of God was not just a demonstration of God's beauty. The glory of God was a a manifestation of His holy power and wrath against sin. And as you read the Old Testament, you discover that the glory of God was the pillar of fire and smoke that led them through the desert for 40 years. And whenever God wanted to set up camp, he would stop moving and that fire would come back down night after night. It would come back down into the tent. And it would stay right there where the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. In fact, the people began to refer to the Ark itself as God's glory. And so when the Philistines beat the Israelites because the Israelites were sinning all over a place against God and they really made the Ark of the Covenant into some kind of superstitious box that they thought, you know, as long as we have the box, we have God and so we can go into battle and we're sure to win. And God allowed them to be beaten and the Philistines took the Ark and Phinehas' wife said, look, the glory has departed. Why the glory? Because that's where God's presence sat. In fact, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called, do you remember, class? The mercy seat. It's where God intended to sit, as it were, to be merciful to his people because of their sin. But they rejected him. We fast forward now all the way up to Second Chronicles. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And here when Solomon was dedicating the recently completed temple, Second Chronicles chapter five. The musicians were playing, 
and the choir was singing, and all of the pageantry that was associated with this transition going from tabernacle now to temple. The glory of God would now move from the tabernacle, the tent, the temporary portable temple, and move to the permanent house, the big house, the temple of the Lord, one of the great wonders of the world. And it was an amazing, amazing celebration. And as the musicians played and the choir sang and everyone was about their business, we are told that the priests who should have been in the temple serving could not stand to minister as they should. Verse 14 says, because the glory of the Lord filled that house. The glory of the Lord filled the house of God. This was not judgment. This was God saying, yes, this is good. I promised I would dwell among you. I would be your God and you would be my people. I want you to see with your eyes that I am keeping my part of the bargain. I am keeping my promise. I will dwell among you. And the glory comes down and enters into the temple. And then in chapter 7, as the dedication ceremony was concluding, we read now, Solomon, this is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, He is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, why did they say that? Because they knew He had come for their good and not for judgment. He was going to dwell among them as this blazing fire devoted to protecting them and prospering them and fulfilling their needs. He was for them as he is for us. He is for all who believe. What a powerful demonstration of the manifest presence of God and there it stayed, as far as we know, through the reign of Solomon. And the people knew that the fire of God was alive in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and where the high priest could enter only once a year. And that was a fearful thing. Can you imagine being the guy? Can you imagine that? Being the guy that has to go in there once a year? Tradition says that, well, the Bible says they would put Bells at the bottom of their robes. You would hear them jingling around. Tradition says they'd also tie a rope to his ankle in case there was any unconfessed sin and he walked in and dropped dead. Nobody could go get him. And so they'd pull on the rope to get him out. We don't have any instance of that happening. But it was a fearful thing to stand before the glory of the Lord. 
And this is why the temple was the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. It was everything to them because it was the place of God's visible presence. And that's why David in Psalm 26 regarding the tabernacle said, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. There's no place that David loved more than to be at the temple. When he had to flee for his life, he wrote some of the Psalms. And he envied the swallows who would build their nest at the house of the Lord. Yet he could not be there. He was envious of the birds of the air that would come and build their nest up in, on, on top of the capital, the, the capitals of the beams, you know, the big pillars of the temple. But he couldn't even set foot on the place because he was a wanted man. Psalm 102.16 says, For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. You see, the glory of the Lord was the visible presence of God. Yes, God was omnipresent by nature. He is everywhere at all times. The universe is inside of Him. He is not within it. He is everywhere. But often, when he wanted to make his presence known, he would appear visibly as a blazing fire, which would fill the people simultaneously with fear and with joy. Can you imagine being there, seeing the presence of God? Can you imagine singing in that choir? It was all men. Sorry, ladies. Lifting up praises before the Lord. Not the Lord that we only hear about in the Word. Not the Lord that we falsely imagine in our minds, because there's nothing that we can imagine in our minds in terms of form that are accurate to what the reality is. But to actually see it. How could you even sing? It was the visible presence of God. Well, we move on through the Old Testament and come to the years of the prophets. And you remember that when the prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah, we sing about this at Christmas, right? He said, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now that's glory. When the Messiah comes, this is not referring to his first coming. This is referring to his second coming. That will be clear in a few minutes. When he comes to set up his kingdom, all flesh will see this glory. This isn't just going to be a pillar of fire. We don't know what this is going to be, but everybody is going to be able to see it. In Isaiah, again, speaking of Israel's future redemption, he writes, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you, Israel. 
The prophets were full of words about the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah was not the only one. If you turn to the book of Ezekiel, oh, if we had time to read the first couple of chapters of Ezekiel, we look at them and we think, oh, my goodness, they're so confusing. Some, you know, one, one rogue theologian even speculated that these wheels and the wheels and all of the movement and the foreign living creature, four-faced living creatures and all of that, I mean, that was some kind of a spaceship that came down and Ezekiel saw it, and that explains, you know, signs and all that stuff. What was all of this? Ezekiel was looking at this going, how am I even going to describe this? It's the glory of God. And when he describes the glory of God, he says, in verses 26 through 28, verse chapter 1, that can't be right. Yes, it can. I'm in Lamentations. Ezekiel 1, 26. And we read, now above the expanse. I'm just cutting through all the other stuff that he said about the glory of the Lord. Because there's so much. There's two chapters of it. And now above the expanse that, it was, that was above the heads of the four creatures, there was something resembling a throne. And on that which resembled a throne, high above was a figure with the appearance of of a man. I wonder who that is. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a, here's our word, radiance about, around him. And the appearance of the rainbow in the cloud, as, it, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance surrounding radiance. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, what did he do? I fell on my face. This was the glory of the Lord. Later, Ezekiel would describe seeing God's glory moving into the temple when he writes, The glory of the Lord went, from the went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And again, Ezekiel 43, verse 1, the prophet writes, Then he led me to the gate, and the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel, was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, brighter than the sun. Even the prophet Zechariah had to get in on this. Zechariah 2.5, I challenge you to find Zechariah. When he revealed how God would one day restore Israel, he said, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. This was the glory of God. In fact, the biblically informed Christian cannot think of the glory of God without thinking of the blazing fire of God's presence. 
because this was the dominant way by which God revealed himself visibly before his people. He was a blazing fire. But it was not something reserved exclusively for Old Testament saints. You can't even read the Christmas story. How appropriate is that? You can't even read the Christmas story without coming face to face with the glory of God. When Luke talks about the night God visited the shepherds, this is Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, this is the, the night when the shepherds were out in their fields by night. We quote this every year. And what happens? He said, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. Have you ever thought what that means? That the glory of the Lord shone round about them? The angel of the Lord, and notice, it's an indefinite article, an angel of the Lord. It's a real angel. It's not the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord has now become a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in Bethlehem. His angels, however, have come to deliver a message. And Luke says, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Here they were standing in darkness, and real, visible light suddenly started coming, it seemed, from everywhere. It was the glory of the Lord. It wasn't just the angels that frightened them. The blazing fire of God burst into the night sky, accompanied by a multitude of the heavenly hosts, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men with whom the Lord is pleased. And by the way, in Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise men coming, you ever wonder, what was that star? Was it really a comet? I have serious doubts that it was a comet. Because when the Magi got into Israel, and they were looking for what house? Where do we go? This star, as they called it, came over a single house in Bethlehem. And it was there that they found Jesus. Now I ask you, what was the star? Well, the scriptures don't tell us. But I suspect it was the glory of the Lord. It was God's manifest presence like he so frequently revealed himself in blazing glory. Follow me and I will take you to him and you will worship him. And so they came to the house where the boy child lived. But this is not the only place Luke writes about the glory of God. In his account of Jesus' transfiguration, Luke chapter 9 Verses 29 through 32, and we read, And while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking 
of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And now Peter and his companions, that was James and John, had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Jesus Christ, as it were, God pulled back the veil of his flesh and they saw who he really is in his glory. And they were terrified. John, too, wrote about that day. He was there. He had been there personally and witnessed it with his own eyes. And in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice, as of the only begotten. You see inheritance there? You see only Son? The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I saw His glory. I saw it. This man is not just a prophet. He is not just a great rabbi. He is God. The blazing glory of God was the symbol of his visible presence. And when Peter and James and John saw it that night, they knew it could only mean one thing. Jesus is the manifest presence of God on earth. This person, no longer a fire, no longer a pillar of smoke, this person now is the manifest, visible presence of the glory of God. He is God's glory. It is the glory that New Testament saints do not get to look at with their eyes. But one day we will see it. One day we will see it. In fact, not just believers, but everyone but believers in particular will see it. And Jesus desires us to see it one day. And so in John chapter 17, one of the most amazing portions of the New Testament, John 17, we talk about Matthew 6 containing the Lord's Prayer. That was really the Lord giving an, exa an example of how the disciples should play, pray. This is the Lord's Prayer, John 17. It was the night before the crucifixion, and Jesus prayed to the Father out loud before his disciples, saying, Now, Father, glorify me together with you, with the glory which I had before the world was. And then in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which was given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. All of it points to the glory of God. And all of us who believed in him on earth will one day know the joy of seeing his glory in heaven. But we'll not be the only ones who see his glory. We'll see it with joy. But there are many, most, on that day who will see it with great terror. Matthew 24 is that classic text about the end times, Jesus teaching about it. And Jesus spoke of the day when he would return to earth, saying... And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. 
You see, when Jesus came the first time as a precious little babe, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, the blazing fire of of His glory was temporarily veiled in human flesh. But when He returns, every eye will see Him. For He will come in blinding glory. For the the unbeliever, the glory of God is something to be feared. The author of Hebrews himself in chapter 12, verse 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. And in Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus got a taste of this on the Damascus road when his caravan was suddenly struck by the glory of God. And the voice cried out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul looked up into the glory and said, he didn't give the answer to that question. He wanted to know something more significant. Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. I am the glory of God. You are persecuting the glory of God. Now, be blind until I let you see again. And Paul repented and became the great apostle Saul repented and became the great apostle Paul because he saw the glory of God. And ungodly men don't view the glory of God as God intends it to be viewed. Paul went on to write in Romans 1 that the glory of God brings judgment because the unbeliever has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And while they live, they continually mock the glory of God in favor of every vile thing. But when they finally see God face to face, they will be judged by the very glory that they reject. And it will be a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And this is why many believe that the fires of eternal hell are nothing but the consuming flame of God's terrifying judgment of glory. But those who love the Lord Jesus have nothing to fear by the glory of God. In fact, Jude exalts in the promise that someday we will all stand in the presence of His glory with great joy. And Peter explains that when Christ appears again, all who live faithfully before Him will receive an unfading crown of what? Glory. And toward the end of John's revelation... The book of Revelation, we read about the new Jerusalem that God will establish, Revelation 21, and it says the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And listen to this, its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb is the glory of God. No more need of sun, because from Him will come all of the light that you could ever possibly need. There will be no shadow. Revelation 22, 3 and 4, John explains, His bondservant will serve Him there, 
And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of light, of a lamp, nor light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. It is the glory of God. You see, beloved, the glory of God is the manifest presence of the Lord. And that presence is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the person of God's glory. He is the supreme revelation of God. Just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth, so Christ is the glorious radiance of God that comes and shines in the hearts of men. More than anything, what the struggling saints of Hebrews needed was a vision of the excellencies of Christ. And what the author gave them was glory. Glory. He was saying, the reason that you should hang all your eternal hope upon Jesus Christ is because he is nothing less than God. He is not like the moon that can only reflect light. He is not like the angels who can only reflect the light. He is not like Moses whose face went aglow when he was in presence, in the presence of God. He was not a radiator. He was a reflector. Rather, he is the very sun itself that radiates glory from deep within his own being. And so the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you see the manifest presence of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus says, no man has ever seen the Father, but the one he has sent namely himself, has made him known or has revealed him. You see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are what? One. One. This is why he's worthy of your temporal sufferings. This is why he is worthy of your hope. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, whatever you do, don't turn your back on him. Love Him, cling to Him, hope in Him, live for Him, die for Him, but don't ever turn your back on Him. Oh, beloved, you and I need to hear this. Christmas can be a really good time for us, or Christmas can be a really bad time for us. It can either drive us toward the glory of God in Christ or it can tempt us to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for things like presents and parties and food and music and worthless trinkets of every imaginable kind. Those things can either drive us to Christ or they can drive us away from Christ. It depends on how you look at them. It depends on how you respond to them. It depends on whether they become for us a temptation to embrace something more desirable than Christ, which is worthless, or rather to receive it with joy, giving thanks to the Father who gave it out of the abundance of His grace. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. So we need to see this. We need to be careful that we're not tempted away 
You see, our temptation is not to give in to the threats of persecution. Our temptation is to give in to the lure of comfort and prosperity and greater pleasures than knowing and serving and fellowshipping with the God of glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our temptation is to view the parties and the food and the presents and all of the celebration as the end and not as the means to an end. Namely, the worship of the Lord Jesus. As an opportunity to declare the excellencies of Christ. And so I exhort you early in this Christmas season, resolve now, beloved, before the festivities begin in earnest, to fix your eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ and proclaim His excellencies by every word, every decision, every purchase, every meal, every opportunity that you experience this Christmas season. May it be an opportunity to declare the glory of God. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, to glorify God in the hearts of all people. May we be found faithful this Christmas to do so. Amen.